for our message today. Pastor Nick will be preaching for us, and his sermon is titled, Wise Men's Journey, Wander, Wonder, and Worship, uh, based on Matthew 2, 1 to 12. Again, that's Matthew 2, 1 to 12. I'll read the passage for us. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went and before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. If we haven't had the chance to meet, my name is Nick Walk. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline, specifically the youth and college pastor. I, I'm actually honored to be able to preach for our New Year's Eve service. And I don't know how to make it till 12 a.m. I'll try my best. To... Just kidding, of course. <laughs> With that said, I thought I'd start off by sharing an interesting fact about myself like I usually do. Uh, back in my college days, did you know that I used to own a snake? Specifically a ball python. And, well, most likely you didn't know. It would be strange if you already did. Right? Anywho, do you know the most important thing when it comes to owning a snake? Specifically owning a python. It's to never hold them around your neck. You don't wear snakes, pythons, like a scarf. And you would think that if I, as a beginner a novice at snake handling, obediently obeyed and followed this one rule, that everyone else, especially the professionals, that they would follow the exact same rule, and yet we'd be wrong. Enter 34-year-old herpetologist, Corey Brine. Basically, what that means is he's just an expert on handling reptiles and amphibians. You see, he had a special passion for snakes in particular. He was known to present his snakes to schools, so that young kids could grow familiar with his favorite animal. He's been handling snakes for so many decades. If you were to trust anyone with a snake, it'd probably be him. So then on June 10, 2010, as Corey was showing off his 9-foot, 25-pound boa constrictor to a friend, right, the snake, it was wrapped around Corey's neck, as was usual for his many showings. 
However, for some reason, the snake, it was a little bit more agitated, a little bit more afraid than usual. And in such a hypersensitive state, the snake did what it does best. As it fell its, itself falling, the snake quickly wrapped around its shoulder and neck, simply to catch itself. And then the snake squeezed. You see, Corey would pass away before the paramedics could even arrive on the scene. Right, although Corey, he was this professional snake handler, his familiarity with snakes, it led to carelessness. He became complacent in regards to his own safety. He became blind to the dangers before him. But what if I were to tell you that we are all, in fact, not too different from Corey? You see, the only difference is that the snake that we carry on our shoulders is this world. After all, the snake we too comfortably leave around our neck is none other than this world we live in. You see, as Christians, we're called to see, to handle this world differently than anyone else. And of course, that should be the case. After all, we've been given divine revelation in the form of God's Word, the Bible, the Holy Scriptures, a manual pertaining to all things, life and godliness. You see, therefore, just as Corey was trained to be this professional snake handler, we're being trained to be essentially professional world handlers. But again, this is the question we need to ask ourselves. Have you become comfortable with the world living coiled around your neck? In other words, have you become complacent in regards to properly navigating this world as the people of God? You see, complacency, it isn't a new problem. This is exactly the kind of complacent state that we find the people of God living 2,000 years ago. Now, though Christ was born in the manger, they had ceased to wait upon him. You see, while the grand plan of salvation was reaching its climax, the whole world, and especially the people of God, they were cozily living out their days without a care. In other words, how the people of God approach and celebrate Advent of the 21st century, oddly enough, it wasn't too different from the people of God and how they approached the Advent of Christ in the first century. Therefore, as we analyze the manner in which the people of God anticipated Christ coming 2,000 years ago, and we learn from their failures, perhaps even see ourselves in their failures, the better equipped we will become to wait, to restructure our lives in regards to Christ's eventual return today. To this end, let me then shift our focus to this group of men, the wise men that we see in our passage, and they will help us achieve this very goal. We'll be navigating this passage under three simple headings. First, in verses 1 through 2, we'll see that Advent calls us to go. Second, in verses 3 to 6, we'll see that Advent calls us to stir up. And finally, in verses 7 to 12, we'll see that Advent calls us to worship. Once again, in light of Advent, we are called to go, we are called to stir up, and we are called to worship. And so let me start with our first heading. Advent calls us to go in verses 1 through 2, starting in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? 
for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. You see, as we look upon the little town of Bethlehem, as Jesus was born, we see that a bit of commotion is beginning to stir up. But unfortunately, it wasn't the town that was busy with excitement with the news of Jesus' birth. Instead, we see a group of men, wise men from the east, came to Jerusalem. Oddly enough, it wasn't the people of God joyously awaiting their Savior's birth, but foreigners, outsiders, those who should not have any knowledge or care for who Christ is, let alone his birth. You see, the wise men make known this news first and foremost. And if you remember the sermon a few weeks ago, Pastor Bill mentioned that the wise men are magi. They, they're those who studied the heavenly bodies in order to understand the world around them. I'd only add that the term wise men, it also broadened out to various, various categories of people who are marked by their superior knowledge and ability our wise men just happened to be astron studied in astronomy. And notice that these weren't fools, crazy people. They weren't quacks, right? The negative connotations of what a Magi is, it comes much later than what Matthew's day, the, those contemporary people would have viewed Magi. To put that very simply, these wise men, they were considered the esteemed, the elites amongst those in society. If I could borrow our contemporary language, these were those who could afford to study. Those who were elites of their fields, considering their rigorous training, perhaps today we'd even consider them as PhD candidates or those with PhDs in their respective fields. And now notice that these were the professionals who studied an endless topic of study, the seemingly infinite expanse of space, and yet, Despite all of their knowledge that they have accumulated, their expertise on the topic, when their profession is confronted with God's plan of salvation, they're left without an answer. We know from verse 2 that they were able to understand the stars, even decipher them enough to come to the conclusion that this star in particular, it was unique. Right? They went around town asking, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw not just any star, his star when it rose and have come to worship him. You see, despite their excellence in their studies, even enough to be titled wise men, they were unable to fully understand where this star of the king of Jews was leading them. And of course, this isn't a surprise for us, as we recognize that God's creation cannot help but reveal him to the rest of creation. Right, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Or Luke 19, 40, you see, Jesus answered, I tell you, if these who worship me are silent, the very stones will cry out. Basically, creation has had this ability to reveal God. And when confronted with that re reality, you see, these wise men sought out God who they did not know through this creation which they did. Ultimately, when confronted with that which is too grand for them and their limited understanding, far from choosing to remain still and silent, they were compelled to go to learn what creation could never reveal. 
You see, brothers and sisters, when is the last time you've been so compelled, so drawn to go and learn more about God? Whether it's through looking at creation, through your studies, your work, or even your limitations. You see, all of us, we, we are so easily consumed by what we do, our occupations, our studies, our hobbies. But did you realize that if these finite things, things that will come to an end, if they can captivate you so much, how much more should our infinite God? After all, all these things, they will come to an end. They will no longer be able to feed our fixation. However, our fascination with God, there is never an end. We could spend all of eternity mining the riches of God's character, His person, and we would never exhaust Him. Again, when's the last time you've been compelled to go to this God? Not only that, did you know that there are many people living in this world who are just like these wise men? Absolutely curious because they've come to an end of answers, whether it's from their expertise, profession, or background, whatever this world could provide for them. Their answers are limited. However, they may not be so compelled to go, to seek answers for themselves. In other words, there's an endless people who have a fascination with the divinity, with who God is, but they don't have the resources or the courage even to seek, to search. There's a reason that the harvest is so plentiful, but the workers are few. What does that mean for you and me? Well, it means that we cannot live like Bethlehem to recreate nor remain like the complacent people of God 2,000 years ago. Although we cannot expect people to come to us to seek answers, we can always be expected to go, to go to them, to proclaim to them, and point to them to the answer that they so desperately need. And sometimes that will be like the 900-mile journey that the wise men took. But more likely, it will be like every single home in Jerusalem. Right? There are people in our very own households, our families, our friends, who need to hear this truth, who need to be drawn, to be fascinated. You don't have to go very far. Now, when we go, wherever that may be, to point and proclaim, what are we exactly doing? Well, thankfully, we can learn from the wise men a little bit more in our second heading as well. We see that Advent doesn't just call us to go, it calls us to stir up in verses 3 to 6. Starting in verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least amongst the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The wise men... As they asked around town for information about the newborn king of the Jews, they had not only raised the commotion that all of Jerusalem heard this news, they had revealed even more about the complacency of the people of God. You see, when the wise men enter into Jerusalem to seek answers to their question, remember that no one is able to give them an answer. Despite the fact that the one whom, they, the, one whom the wise men sought after 
He was none other than the promised Savior who would deliver the people of God. The son of David, whom they had patiently waited for nearly a thousand years. You see, when Jesus actually is revealed, no one knew where to look for him. They didn't know anything about their precious Savior. In fact, it reveals that Jesus was less precious than perhaps their own thoughts, their own versions of him in their head. You see, as they waited upon the promises of God, they hadn't been fully satisfied with what God actually promised and when he will promise it. And in fact, to make the situation worse, it's not the people of God who discern where to look for the answers, the answers that these foreigners were looking for about their own God and Savior. It's another foreigner who actually initiates the search. You see, the people of God, they struggled so much to give an answer that the king himself heard. And although when he heard this, he was troubled initially. In verse 4, we see that he immediately began to assemble a proper team to find the answers. Right? Assembling all the chief priests, the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And this is something that's extremely important for us to remember, especially if you want to fight against the complacent state of the people of God. Even if you don't have the right answers, you have the right resources to look. It's the scriptures, it's the word of God, it's the Bible. It's exactly where these chief priests and scribes searched in verses 5 through 6, right? For so it is written by the prophet. That's talking about the Old Testament prophet. They had searched the Old Testament prophets. They had looked at the word of God and they have seen a new Bethlehem in the land of Judah are by no means least amongst the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. When's the last time that you've been so compelled, that you felt that you had to search scripture because you're just so out of answers? You see, the wise men, they stirred up Herod. They stirred up the chief priests and scribes. But honestly, why must we wait like them? for some opportunity to stir us up. Don't you know that the same God who directed the wise men through the supernatural sending of a star that was beyond their expectation, the same God who would stir up an entire country through a handful of men asking a simple question, the same God who can move the king himself as well as all of his powerful officials, don't you think this same God has the power to transform you through your pursuit of such ordinary means of grace, of the scriptures, of prayer, of the sacraments, of fellowship, must you wait for a miracle? When we see in our passage that all of these, we have to call them miracles, they were subservient to the greatest resource, the word of God. What the wise men traveled several hundred miles to seek, what Herod had to assemble his wisest officials in order to simply answer you have already readily available in your fairy fingertips. Again, when's the last time you held the word of God with such regard? When's the last time the word of God has st was stirred up in your conversations and in your relationships with your friends and your families, let alone your brothers and sisters of our common faith? You see, we're living in a time of war not just physically, but spiritually. At all times, we need to be prepared. And yet we wear the sword of God like it's an ornamental sword, 
as if it has no edge, as if it no longer needs to be pulled out because the decorations are sufficient. Brothers and sisters, the word of God is a lion. Let it out. You have no need to protect it. Let it protect you. Right? If you have any semblance of worry about your faith, you have even an ounce of strength to pursue your relationship with God, would it be so impossible to start with our Bibles, to become familiar enough to handle the word of truth properly, that you would be confident, comfortable to guide those who are scrapping for answers in this world, to be comfortable enough to simply point them to the right direction, either to walk alongside them as you navigate Scripture or to be able to direct them, to connect them to those other believers so that you can wrestle with these difficult conversations together. And naturally, as you seek out others, as you stir them up towards the Scriptures, never forget the heart. Would you continue to direct them to Him who is at the heart of the Scriptures? We turn now to our final heading. Advent calls us to worship in verses 7 through 12 starting in verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child would marry his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Oddly enough, Although King Herod has the wrong motives, he essentially desired to rid himself of competition instead of being genuinely interested in knowing more about Jesus and desiring to worship him. It doesn't mean his words and actions are completely devoid of helpful application. In verse 7, Herod invites the foreigners in order to not only guide them in their search, but to learn more about how they were able to figure out the details of Jesus' birth which even his closest aides did not make known to him. And in verse 8, Herod sent them to the right direction of Bethlehem. He commanded them to go. He stirred them up to search diligently for the child and to conclude all of this in worship. He understood exactly what he should be doing. Except Herod, he did all these things for the wrong reason. After all, Herod, he recognized that the birth of King Jesus meant the eventual usurping of his own throne. That is, in order for this newborn Jesus to be king, Herod must leave his throne. He must surrender his throne. And so Herod, he was, he was confronted with the same question that every single individual amongst the people of God who wrestle with complacency are confronted with. Will you submit to the true king? Or will you continually try to maintain your own throne, despite knowing that this is an act of rebellion against God. To put that very simply, it's a question of who will you worship? Who or what will you choose to worship 
and obey. Brothers and sisters, notice that complacency. It's neither passive nor lazy. It's actually one in which requires your active participation. You don't wake up one day and find yourself to be a rebel against God. You actively choose to become one step by step as you make choice by choice. Every time you're confronted with the question of worship, that is, what is most deserving of your time, your energy, your possessions, your affections, your attentions, you are making an active choice to rebel. And as you continually choose to worship the creation rather than the creator, you're becoming like the very deaf and dumb idols that we seek to worship. If I can borrow the words of my professor, G.K. Veal, what people revere, they resemble, either to ruin or restoration. Right, we heard this at the beginning of the year, and we get to hear it at the end. To put that even more simply, you become what you worship, whether for ruin or for renewal. Complacency is the highest form of praise for idols of an idolatrous people. After all, what, do, what, do the, what does it do? It equalizes the idol and the idolater. Both become an absence of both light and light to the world around them as they stand as these signposts of anti-God propaganda. It's like putting a jet engine inside of a car. That's not the creator's intended purpose. So that the engine which is able to soar through the sky with all of its wonderful potential, what does it do? It now crawls underground slowly, actually destroying the car that contains it. Although the car can benefit and even enjoy the pleasure of the strongest engine possibly available, it's dying, it's falling apart in order to do so, despite not even being able to use the full potential of what a jet engine can accomplish. You see, brothers and sisters, we were created as vessels of worship. We have this God-shaped hole in our hearts. We were created to experience the fullness of God's glory. And yet, why do we find ourselves as infinite vessels of God's glory to fill it with dirt, to fill it with things that will not last, to collect material that would be considered mere concrete in the heavenly streets of the kingdom of God. We like to consider ourselves reasonable people, but when we take a step back, we fall for the chimes and whistles of foolishness and ignorance without a single thought. And we see from the example of the wise men in the rest of our passage, an alternative the proper heart and posture of worship. We see in verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. After hearing the answer from Scripture, it's as if nature itself began to shift in relation to this newfound revelation. As it were, either creation conformed to the word of God or the wise men, they were suddenly able to follow the star properly because they understood the star from the lens of Scripture and not from their worldly professions. Hey, isn't that the heart of worship? God 
God's word, it opens our hearts. It directs our hearts to worship. Like the wise men, we're compelled to go to God to worship him because God first opened our eyes, showed us what it means to come to him in worship. What about verse 10? When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. The God who directed them to himself through his word and his world, he now stirs the wise men's hearts. In other words, God doesn't just draw us to himself when we come to him. He fills our hearts with incomprehensible joy. You see, the wise men, they were finally able to fulfill their purpose in life. Notice the phrase, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It wasn't just an expression of joy, a mere passing feeling of joy. It was as if their only response possible was this uncontrollable release and satisfaction. Many of us know what, what it's kind of like. It's like when your favorite sports team wins the championship. That sense of near delirium because you're just so excited, so overwhelmed, so captivated by that one thing. Could you imagine if that's how our hearts were stirred up every time when we came to the worship God? In verse 11, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasure, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. The God who directed them to himself through his word and world now stirs the wise men's hearts and this results in worship. First, these wise men who traveled hundreds of miles already and then add another six miles to Bethlehem. But they didn't collapse because of their fatigue, because they were tired. They fell down because they wanted to worship. But that's not the only reason, only thing that fell down. Though these were esteemed individuals, notice they bow so willingly to a child. Right? They set aside their physical needs as well as their pride or status in order to worship Jesus. They didn't care who was around, what the implications would be. All they knew was, this is him, and I need to worship him. And not only that, look at the three gifts that they gave. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. Right? We can say a lot about these things, but simply put, together these three gifts were precious. They were truly fit for a king. And who did they give it to? It's Jesus. There was no distance too far, no status too low, nor a gift too precious. In other words, at the heart of worship isn't just being drawn to God, overwhelmed by joy in his presence, but the willingness to surrender all of your life yourself to him. And so why exactly is it that Jesus is such a worthy king, deserving of all of our worship, affection, our entire beings? Well, we have a different king to compare to Jesus. A king who represents this world, perhaps even our own hearts, should we let it rule over us. Notice what King Herod command, what he commanded the wise men in verse 8. It's a familiar statement. It's actually a corrupted version of the Great Commission at the end of the book of Matthew. And compared to the king whose hollow promise is, go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I may come and worship him. 
We have a king who gives a far better promise, an unshakable promise, not one that requires the death of another to save his own skin, but the king who is willingly, willing to lay down his own kingship, his own life, even if it was only for a duration of three days. For what end? To provide crowns for all of his people. But remember what he promised. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He felt no challenge nor complex when it came to his throne. He was confident, this is mine and mine alone. And yet, he didn't end it there. He wants you to join it. He says, go. Therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. He didn't send foreigners, strangers that he had just met to do a task for him. He sent his closest disciples, whom he has been traveling with, raising up, stirring up throughout their journey for the sake of reaching those foreigners and the lost instead. And he concluded, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You see, he doesn't just send us away and just wait for our successful response. Jesus says, I'm going with you. In fact, I am always with you in this journey. You see, what changed between Jesus' birth and resurrection or rebirth is not actually our responsibility. What we are called to do in the Great Commission was what the people of God has always been called to do, to become a city of light, to draw in the lost. In many ways, the wise men, they followed the Great Commission through their pattern of life in our passage already. Therefore, what actually has changed is this. It's the level of confidence comfort that we have in our King. What the people of God awaited in promised form, we've already re received in the flesh through Jesus Christ. Where we have the full assurance that He who did not spare His own Son, but graciously gave Him, us, gave him up for us all, how will we not also with Him graciously give us all things? But the question you must wrestle with today as you reflect on your life this past year, what did your worship look like? And as you prepare for worship in the new year, as you prepare your resolutions, your schedules, essentially prepared for the busyness of life that is approaching, ask yourselves again and again, is Jesus worthy of your worship? Not just on church on Sunday, but throughout your days, weeks, and months this year, not just in this one particular area of your life, but in every sphere? Is he someone you're drawn to go to, stirs up your affection when you talk about him, or talk with him in prayer? Is he someone you can declare is a better king than anyone or anything else in this world, including yourself? Brothers and sisters, would you wrestle with these questions, not just for this new year, but until he returns or he calls us home? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have disrupted our complacent lives. Though we grow weary, unfaithful, listless at times, that, you, that is not characteristic of you, that you have always been faithful, that you have always been planning, and that this process 
was one from the beginning that you had declared to fulfill and you have been fulfilling each and every day, even when we're blind to see it, even when we are tempted to call it slowless. Lord, you have a heart for your people. You have a heart for them to come to you, to be stirred up by you, to fulfill their life's purpose, to worship you, to enjoy you, to find nothing else to satisfy that God-shaped hole. And so, Lord, we ask at this time, as we reflect on all the things that we've done this year, as we've seen how much of a priority you've been in our lives, as we prepare for the new years, and we know that the things aren't going to go the way we plan, that there will be many things that we'll have to wrestle, struggle with, that you will be faithful, you will carry us through. But more than that, that we want to offer our finest gifts, our whole selves, as a gift deserving, of a gift that is worthy to be given to a king because you have covered us in your blood and you have given us a crown of life, of righteousness. And so, Lord, until the day we see you, until the day we meet you face to face, whether you return first or call us home, Lord, help us to live faithfully, trusting in your plan and your purpose. In the strong name of Christ we pray. Amen.